Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. To get started here, uh, this is not a Bible text, but this is a picture of a chart. And I don't know if any of you recognize what kind of chart this is. The moms should, dads, you really should. This is a growth chart for a young child. Uh, This particular one tracks a child from 0 to 24 months. And those lines you see are trajectories of normal growth for a child. But what you do is you plot the measurements of your child, and if they generally follow those trend lines, it's a sign of health. Now, what's more important is if your child doesn't follow those general trend lines. If there isn't that natural progression of growth, it can be a sign of an underlying symptom or an underlying problem. I want to use this today because what we see here is an example of the normal growth of a human child into an older child and eventually into adult. And there is a normal progression, an average progression that we all go through. And if something is not right or that progression doesn't go as normal, it can be a sign that there's a problem. And I use this to help us understand a central metaphor in Ephesians today. Because the Apostle Paul is going to compare us to a child that's growing into an adult. And just as if there was no change between you as a child and you as an adult, it would suggest a problem. In the same way, there is a natural progression that all believers go through. From becoming children in their faith to becoming mature adults in following Jesus. But how does that happen? How do we go through that natural progression of growing up in our walk with Christ? And we're going to see in today's text that Paul is going to talk about the gifts that God has given us so that we grow up into adults. So let's look at that. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 7, and in this first part of our passage, we're going to see the God who gives gifts. So follow along as I read verses 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high... He led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. So just a reminder for the context of this verse here. In verses 4 to 6, Paul reminds us of what unites all believers. Let me read that just by way of reminder from last week. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he's talked about everything that unites us as believers, but then in this part of the passage, he goes in a slightly different direction. Now, this does not go against unity, as we'll see in a little bit. But notice in verse 7, he switches. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. While we are united through our relationship with God, God has given each one of us gifts and talents. And according to God's grace, he gives each of us a measure of that gift. A couple things we need to note here. First of all, every gift and talent you have is because of God's grace, and it is a demonstration of God's grace. You don't earn the gifts you have. And when you use them, you are demonstrating God's grace. And every time you use them, you need to see these opportunities as God's grace to you. It is God's grace to us that he has given us gifts and talents to do good works. I think that is a significant way in which we can change how we view what God has called us to do. Too often we think of good works as things we must do. Or I'm going to do them so God doesn't get mad at me. But how much we would change if we viewed the opportunity for good works as a sign of God's grace to us. And I think that has an opportunity to change everything about how we live. Now, to undergird this idea that God gives each Christian grace gifts, Paul quotes from Psalm 68, verse 18. So let me read that because it's a little confusing. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So because Jesus descended in coming to earth as a baby and living a life as a human, culminating in his death and resurrection, which in turn led to his victorious ascension, we can see that this verse applies to him in that he gives gifts to his people. So briefly, by way of summary, before we move on, we need to see here that every single believer in Jesus has been given gifts by Jesus as an act of his grace with the purpose that we might serve God and one another in our community with those gifts. Serving with the gifts God has given you is not bonus Christianity. It is central to it, and what I'm going to argue here in the coming verses is that it is a significant part and often overlooked part of our maturity in Christ. When we talk about maturity in Christ, 
What I want us to see this morning is that you cannot be mature in Christ apart from serving others with your gifts. So let's look at the next part of our passage. So we move from the God who gives gifts to being equipped for maturity. And this is going to continue on in the first part, this idea of God being a gift-giving God. Let's begin in verse 11 there. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So continuing this idea of God giving to his people, but here Paul speaks about gifts in a different way, not speaking as much as spiritual gifts or spiritual talents, but in speaking of people and offices as gifts to the church. And again, this isn't normally how we think of the idea of God giving gifts. As one author writes, verse 11 specifies the nature of the gifts in terms of persons who are involved in some form of ministry and proclamation of the word. One of the reasons I included that quotation is because, as you'll see, there can be a lot of disagreement over the details of this verse. But what I think is very clear on a basic level, is that all of these four or five, yes, there's even a debate about how we should count them, the common thread here is leadership through the proclamation of the word. So however we might understand the individual parts here, what we need to see is that these gifts from God are leaders that have been given to the church, and the primary tool of their leadership is the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Now, I want to move through these, and I even debated how much time do I want to spend on each one of these, but because much ink has been spilled on this issue, I want to clear up some thoughts, but I will move a little quickly. So the first one, apostles. As you can imagine, there is some debate about whether this gift office is still working today. When he says apostles, is this referring to those original apostles, the original 12 disciples plus Paul? And I think there's something to that because it's paired with prophets, which we've seen earlier in the book referring to, as one author puts it, the foundational role as the authoritative recipients and proclaimers of God's revelation. So you can think of the Bible, in a sense, as written by the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. But there's also a sense in which we can understand this in a broader context. So the word apostle simply means the one sent. In this understanding, this gift to the church can be used to talk about missionaries or church planters or people who are sent out to proclaim and start new gospel work just as the original apostles were. Secondly, we have the prophets. Again, you can understand the debate here. Is this referring to the writing prophets of the Old Testament? Or people like Agabus who are talked about in the book of Acts? Again, more broadly speaking, we can understand those who are particularly adept at speaking with what we might call a prophetic voice. We think of people in church history like Martin Luther who spoke truth to power and spoke unpopular truth, 
calling people outside and inside the church to repentance. And so you can see that broader application of this term. Just as the prophets of the Old Testament would call people to repentance and faith in God, so too God has particularly gifted people to speak that truth to the church and to the world. Three, we have evangelists. Again, on a, on a very direct level, this is someone engaged in the preaching of the gospel. It seems best to understand this as people who have a special gift of sharing the gospel with unbelievers. I think we all know at least a handful of people who that is their passion, that is their gifting. This, of course, does not mean that only Christian evangelists are those who share the gospel. Well, since I'm not whoever in your mind, I don't have to do it. We think of what Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy chapter 4-5. And I think it's very clear from the rest of the Bible that this is a work that all of us are to be engaged in at one level or another. But that does not mean that God has not gifted specific people to the church who have a specific gifting and passion for evangelism. Number four, shepherds or pastors. Now, there is some evidence that this should be connected with teacher in the next one, but for today, I'll treat them as distinct categories. The emphasis in the shepherd for our understanding of how this applies to us today is in the leadership, protection, and caring for the congregation. This one, shepherd, is easy to minimize because I think because many of us are not shepherds, we don't understand the full-orbed nature of that work. In contrast with the other offices listed here, protection and caring come to the forefront. It's easy to picture the shepherd protecting from predators and giving first aid to wounded sheep. And it's important for us to see how this multifaceted metaphor of a shepherd is. Shepherds lead the sheep, they protect the sheep, and they care for the sheep. There is, again, a strong connection with teacher, which is in the next part of the list. In fact, some people think we should hyphenate this as shepherd-teacher. Because as we stated earlier, what connects all of these together is a proclamation of the Bible. But as one author has commented on this, all pastors teach, but not all teachers are also pastors. And that gets us to the fifth one, teachers. In addition to what has been said, it's important for us to see the centrality and explicit nature of teaching the Word of God. In one sense, all the other offices are also teachers. And here it's important to see the gift of teachers to the church. We see the gift of those willing to teach children as an essential part of passing our faith to the next generation. And the church historically has recognized what we might call seminary professors or Bible college teachers who train future leaders in the church. And I would argue as we get farther away from when the Bible was written, both historically and culturally, the more important it becomes for there to be people especially trained 
in helping us to go back to a culture and a history that we are not personally familiar with and to have technical knowledge of languages like Hebrew and Greek. And you can see how there is that slight difference and distinction there, but you can see how all of these five work together. Again, while there may be debate over the details, I think what captures this as a category is fairly clear. God has given leaders to the church and using the proclamation of the word, they lead the church. But what we see is the purpose for that. And I think it's important to see how Paul talks about the purpose of these leaders. What are they to do? Let's look at verses 12 to 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The first thing that I want us to see here is in verse 12 that these leaders are not just to do what God has called them to do. It's not just about themselves. It is they are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I want you to see how those three phrases in chapter 12 or in verse 12 work together. This idea of equipping or helping others to use their gifts. God did not give leaders to the church to do everything. But as they fill out their gifts, part of what they do, and a significant part of what they do, is to call the whole church to use their gifts as well. Sometimes when we use the word ministry, I'm going into the ministry, what do we mean? We mean a pastor. Or we think of an elder. But what I want us to see is that each and every single one of us has responsibilities for the work of ministry. This ties back to the idea that each one of us has gifts given from God. And therefore, if you want to think of it this way, everyone has a responsibility to use the gifts that God has given them. And when we do that, It is for the building up of the body of Christ. Notice that growth here is corporate. That it's not presented here as the leader helps you use your gifts and then you will grow. Now that's true. But it's significant because we'll come back to this in a second. But it's significant that what Paul is talking about is that when the leaders equip the saints for the work of ministry, the whole body of Christ grows. It is built up. It reminds us that both ministry and building the church is a whole church project. To borrow from one of the commentators on this, we need to think of building up as both extensive and intensive, by which 
we mean that we should do the work of ministry to grow in adding people to the church, but also grow in godliness and maturity. But what I want us to see primarily from this part of the passage is the corporate nature of our identity and our growth. It's not just about you and your relationship with Jesus. It's interconnected. We grow together as we grow individually. The picture is of us as growing as a church, as a unified body of Christ. Paul describes this further of what this looks like in verse 13. Because what does it look like to be mature? Is it just old age? Let's hope not. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Look at how Paul describes the result of growth. It's not becoming more impressive or influential. It's becoming more like Jesus. We are to grow until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We need to understand how this flies in the face of what our world would say success is. Growth and maturity looks like unity around the faith, our common doctrine. And we are called to grow and mature in the knowledge of the Son of God. And we've talked about this before. When the Bible talks about knowing God, we can speak about knowing about God, but we also need to speak about knowing God relationally, and the two go hand in hand. We grow in our relationship with Jesus, and one of the best ways to do that is to grow and mature in our knowledge about Jesus and how great of a Savior he is. And when we are unified around our faith and when we have matured in our understanding of who Jesus is, we attain mature manhood. Now, Paul will come back to contrast this with children in verse 14. But for now, I think we can be helped on this pic- with this picture by itself. To use the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, if we begin our faith like a child, the goal of our faith is to grow up into an adult. And that's one of the ways I've heard that passage misused. It's sort of, we become... We become followers of Jesus like children, but the idea is then I'm allowed to stay that way. <laughs> and that's why I want you to think of that growth chart. There is a natural progression. There is a natural maturity that we should be striving for year after year as we follow Jesus. Yes, we enter into the kingdom of heaven like a child, but there is never a point in which Jesus says, stay like a child. <laughs> Just as our biological bodies have a natural progression, so too should our faith. Again, do you have that category in your life of a need to mature, a need to change, a need to grow? 
I want to again put this in the context of how Paul began this section. He talked about how each one of us has gifts that we should use. And one of the traps we can fall into is that maturity and growth only happens in my quiet time. Well, I just need to read the Bible some more. Or I just need to pray more and then I'll be more mature. Now, never neglect those. But something I think we often overlook is that using our spiritual gifts to serve others must be a significant part of our maturity in Christ. In fact, let me say it this way, that you cannot become a mature believer unless you are serving others with the gifts God has given you. Don't neglect reading the Word. Don't neglect prayer. But I think more often than not, we neglect the serving part. Use the gifts God has given you. And we need to understand that along with prayer and Bible study, that all three of those work together for our maturity. Again, think of a mature believer that you respect, and I will show you someone that uses their gifts to serve others. The other thing that I want to highlight here is the picture of a mature believer is not just a grown adult. It's a grown adult who is Jesus. It's not just that we are older and bigger, it's that we have grown up to be more like Jesus. And again, that's the standard we need to place in front of our lives. Am I changing, am I growing to be more like Jesus? Now, it's at this point in the text that Paul will now contrast this picture of a mature adult with what happens if we're not mature adults. Okay, so let's look at verse 14. Here's the danger. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. If Christian maturity and growing up into a Christian adult is the positive result of being led to do the work of ministry, then verse 14 contains the negative result of immaturity, of what we're trying to avoid. When we have attained adult-like maturity, we are no longer children. And Paul uses the lack of size and strength to talk about the dangers of immaturity. Paul wants you to picture a child trying to swim in very choppy waters with large waves and strong currents. The small child, because of the lack of size and strength, is at the mercy of the water. They cannot resist the pushes and pulls of the water and the wind. Again, look at verse 14. They are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind. But obviously, Paul is not literally talking about waves and wind here. He is talking about the false and sinful forces in this world. Just like a child who is at the mercy of the strong wind and waves, the immature believer is at the mercy of every false teaching that exists in our world, the wind of doctrine. Just like a helpless child, 
The immature believer is confused by everything they hear from other people, human cunning. Just like a small child lost in the water, the immature believer falls prey to every lie that exists in our world, craftiness in deceitful schemes. Without the anchor of a mature understanding of God's word, you will be tossed around because you do not have the strength to stand firm. We each need to pursue maturity because of the dangers and temptations of this world. And this leads to the last part of the text, verses 15 and 16, where Paul calls us to a better way, a way that will protect us from every wave and wind of doctrine, a better way that will lead us to maturity in Christ. And that's speaking the truth in love. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The first thing we need to see here is that speaking the truth in love is in direct opposition to the false doctrine and false teaching of verse 14. We do not lie to people, we proclaim God's truth. But importantly, we need to do so in a loving manner. Notice that the phrase in love occurs both here at the beginning of verse 15 and at the end of verse 16. Throughout all of this process, we need to see that it must be done in a loving manner. Love needs to permeate through everything we say and do as a church. But let me also highlight that this is written to the whole church. For there to be growth and maturity in the body of Christ, each one of us must be committed to speaking the truth in love. Again, one of the dangers we have is where we only apply this to those who do most of the speaking, which is the leaders. But what Paul is calling the entire Ephesian church to is a culture of speaking the truth in love. Because it's only when we speak the truth in a loving way, to use the words of verse 15, that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. But in this, we also need to see that when we speak the truth in love, Christ will use that to transform every single part of our lives. Don't miss that phrase in every way. But again, we also see that this growth is corporate. We don't just grow on our own. You are not an island. You are a part of the church. And when we all speak the truth in love, we grow together. It's important to see how this metaphor of the church as a body comes up again and again to talk about the unity and diversity that exists in the church. And it is when we are equipped by the word of God and joined and held together by every joint that each of us is working properly. Again, going back to the idea of using the gifts God has given us. Every one of us has a job. 
We've seen this before when we've talked about the metaphor of the church as a body. Every body part has a function. Every body part of the church has a function. And when we are working properly, the whole body grows and builds itself up. A couple things to note here. Number one, some look to this reference to the joints as referring to the leaders from verse 11. A church is held together when the leaders lead the people to serve one another and grow in maturity. This also helps us to see the need for an active, healthy church. Two, we must simultaneously be committed to speaking the truth and to do so in a loving way. It's important when we come to a phrase like speaking the truth in love, first of all, we need to think of ourselves, not the other person that we're thinking of at that moment, but thinking to myself this, what is my default? Which way am I more likely prone to fail? It is a failure to not speak the truth, and it is a failure to not speak the truth in a loving way. Some of us need to do better at the loving part, and some of us need to do better at the truth part. And one of the ways you can be mature is to know where your bias is. So you can bring alongside people who have different giftings from you to balance you out or to get uh, wisdom from. But it's when you understand who you are and how you need to grow. Sometimes this bias really depends on who we're talking to. One of the great leadership failures of King David was that he was great at executing justice unless it came to his family. His lack of speaking the truth about his son Amnon was one of the main reasons for Absalom's treason and all of the rest of that terrible chapter in Israel's history. He would not show justice to his son, and it almost destroyed the kingdom. This is a great example of if we do not speak the truth in love, most of the time the problem will only get bigger. And this is one of the ways that all of us can be part of the solution. When speaking the truth in love is a normal part of our conversations with one another, we are better able to deal with problems when they are smaller and more manageable. This is one of the times that the Bible calls us to do what is more difficult, but what is also better. We must be firmly committed to both speaking the truth and doing so in a loving way. Only when we speak the truth in love will each part of the body of Christ function as it should and produce growth. A couple thoughts to conclude this morning. Number one, God has given each of us, every single one of us, gifts to serve one another. Our responsibility is to use the gifts God has given us for his glory and the good of others. The diversity of our gifting is actually a force that unites us together. Value how God has gifted you. Love how God has gifted others around you. 
Now, granted, it's weird for me to preach on a passage that talks about the leaders of the church, and I get that. But we need to see those whom God has placed over us as leaders as a gift from God to help us grow in Christ-like maturity. Two, you cannot attain Jesus-like maturity without doing the work of ministry. Central to maturity, especially in this passage, is serving others with the gifts God has given us. Notice in all this talk of growth, of maturity, the only spiritual discipline listed has been serving others with our gifts. Again, as I mentioned before, normally we think of the mature person as the one who most frequently prays and reads their Bible. And that's, that is true, but we must not forget or neglect the essential aspect of growth through serving using the gifts God has given you. Thirdly, we must be people who speak the truth in love. This is so difficult to do well. We should always be wrestling with how we speak to one another. And this begins with knowing your own bias. This is one of the reasons I am so thankful we have a group of elders with different gifts and emphases. And this is where the body of Christ really helps us. We can be helped by the gifts of others to help us all grow in speaking the truth in love. It is a time where we must be fully committed to both parts, speaking the truth and speaking the truth in a loving way. I'll close with this. May we be a people who love and cherish the gift of grace that God has given us that we would follow those whom God has given the church to lead us, that we would all be equipped for ministry through the proclaiming of the truth, and that through the work of ministry, we would all become mature followers of Jesus Christ, growing the body of Christ with more people and more godliness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. God, that you would use the leaders of this church, the leaders of others' church, leaders around the world as gifts to bring about growth in your people. That Christians in this church would be equipped for the ministry of the church and that we would all be a part of that. And that every single one of us would be committed to speaking the truth in love so that we would grow in unity and maturity to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island, and if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.